This message comes from NPR sponsor, the Capital One Venture X Card. Earn unlimited 2X miles on everything you buy. Plus, get access to a $300 annual credit for bookings through Capital One Travel. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com.
Welcome to From the Top, where outstanding young musicians come to play. I'm your host, pianist Peter Dugan, and you just heard 15-year-old clarinetist Santiago del Corto from Long Island City perform Shalom Alechem Rov Feidman by Bella Kovac, and I had the great fun of joining him on the piano. We're coming to you today from New York City, the Big Apple, a place where artists gather to create, to find inspiration, and yes, where dreams really can come true. And we at From the Top strive every day to help turn young musicians' dreams into reality. Now, this week, our performers got to meet a titan in the world of classical music, Deborah Borda, someone who's been in the business of making dreams come true for decades now, including starting the Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles, completing L.A.'s Walt Disney Concert Hall and New York's David Geffen Hall, and most recently, bringing Gustavo Dudamel to the New York Philharmonic. She's a true icon in the arts world. She's going to join us later in the episode today to discuss leadership, risk-taking, and learning from unexpected sources. And speaking of leadership, the 18-year-old concertmaster of Juilliard's pre-college orchestra will be joining us with a stunning performance of Inescu's rarely heard Nocturne. And then we'll have a trilingual composer who shares with us how she wants to heal the world through her film scores one day. But first, to kick off the program, let's meet the fabulous clarinetist you just heard, Santiago del Corto. Santiago, welcome to From the Top. Hi, thank you. What an exciting piece to play. And that klezmer style requires you to go outside of the sort of traditional classical sound on the clarinet, and you brought it, man. Thank you. Santiago, I have to let our listeners in on a secret, which is that I met you 10 years ago when you were five years old because I was playing a gig with your parents, who are both professional musicians, great tango players. Your mom's a cellist. Your dad plays bandoneon. And you've performed with them, too, right? And even gotten to, like, tour and have some pretty memorable musical experiences. Yeah, I think one of my first big experiences was at the Montclair Jazz Festival in New mm -hmm. Jersey mm -hmm. when I was seven years old. I played alongside Paquito de Rivera. Like, yeah, that was like one of the biggest events I've ever played that cause at, because it was like a outdoor festival and so many people. And yeah. I, I loved performing and I still do. So, yeah. yeah. With, with Paquito being like one of the great iconic clarinetists of all time, did, did that kind of help solidify your desire to pursue clarinet seriously? Was that like a seminal moment? Yeah, definitely. I he was just such a inspiration and obviously he's like one of those the great jazz legends and he also um wrote me a piece called Blues for Santi. And Wow, I've, you just yeah. kind of like snuck that detail in there. Paquito de Rivera <laughs> wrote a piece for you. Yeah. That's I, huge. Blues for Santi. It's one of the most important pieces to me. That's yeah. so special. When you're not playing music, one of your favorite things to do is build computers. Three years ago, I I started looking at like building PCs. So I started watching videos, researching, and I decided I wanted to save to build my own computer so I can wow. have a nice computer that will last me a while and know how to repair it if anything goes wrong. Before you go, we have to talk about one other talent of yours, which you've only just recently shared with me. You're a beatboxer. Yeah. So I was always like kind of in into percussion mm -hmm. in general. I always, I, ever since I was little, I had like pictures of me with like headphones on and like drumsticks and just banging on like pots and pans and stuff yeah. in, in the apartment. 
and then I school happened, and that you know that took it to a new level of you know tapping on desks and drumming and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then it evolved into making sounds with my mouth, and it was it like all my friends. Once I started learning, all my friends thought it was like insane. <laughs> so I yeah, I, that was probably one of the the coolest things I learned to do. Yeah. So can you? Can you give me a taste? All right. stunned that's like high level next level beatboxing i was i was just ready for you to do that's what i used to do and all my friends were like on like that is some advanced (laughs) stuff man building computers beatboxing (laughs) traveling the world playing the clarinet um this is santiago del corto what a what a talent thank you for spending time with us today thank you Santiago del Corto is 15 and from Long Island City, New York. Okay, up next, a trilingual composer who's able to find inspiration for her music in everything she encounters. This is A Vast Ye Maidens Sing, composed by 18-year-old Yuri Lee from Tuckahoe, New York, performed by musicians from the New Deco Ensemble.
Avast Ye Maidens Sing, composed by 18-year-old Yuri Lee from Tuckahoe, New York, performed by musicians from the New Deco Ensemble, Elizabeth Liu on flute, violinist Michelle Skinner, cellist Aaron Merritt, and pianist Jenny Snyder. I'm here with the composer, 18-year-old Yuri Lee. Now, wow, um, your creativity and how you write for that ensemble is stunning. So much texture, the extended techniques bring the piece to life, and I could hear the sirens, quite literally. Beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) Talk to me a little bit about your use of extended techniques in that piece. Sure. So I'm usually very conservative with extended techniques, but this time I wanted to bring out the life of a ship. And so Mm -hmm. the opening, Jenny is using insurance cards on the piano to get that uh, scrapey sound. Insurance cards. Yes. She was like, I I broke my nails practicing your piece. I'm going to use insurance cards instead. So that sort of clicky sound we heard throughout was was literally plastic being kind of run against the keys of the piano. Exactly. And all those sounds kind of came to me after binge-watching the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. <laughs> and I realized that the ships and the, the waves of the ocean, they, they have a life of their own. Yeah. And so I wanted to illustrate that. Ooh. I think imagination is a key part of not just music, but also life. Yeah. Um, just picturing yeah. what is possible and thinking outside the box is very vital. I'm with you on that. You're so creative. The way that you're able to bring together something that's sound-based and visual. I know you're also interested in, down the road, diving into the world of film scoring. Yes. In 2011, there was a huge earthquake and tsunami in Japan, Mm -hmm. and that was so devastating. But I was still young, so I don't remember much about it, except for everyone around me crying and dealing with this huge disaster. Mm -hmm. And then during the reconstruction effort, there was a song called Hana Wasaku, which means flowers will bloom in Japanese. Mm. And that song was written and sung by many, even celebrities and everyone Mm. to bring hope to the victims. And that was the first time I realized that music really has power to penetrate through suffering and physical, mental, emotional barriers and touch Mm -hmm. people's hearts. And so that was when I decided that I'm going to make people happy with music. And since then, I decided that film scoring will be my way of reaching that dream. And so I'm going to be a film composer one day. But Mm -hmm. for now, I'm going to focus on being able to write good music first. Right. Learning all of the craft and at a very, very deep level and getting all those tools to be able to express yourself. Mm-hmm. I love it. I could I could chat with you all day. You're, you're <laughs> uh, such a talented composer and there's so much wonderful stuff ahead for you in your future. Thank you very much. 18-year-old composer Yuri Lee from Tuckahoe, New York. I'm telling you, I learned so much from these young people and Yuri's excitement, her passion for finding inspiration just in everyday things reminded me how important it is that we pay attention and we just take a moment to observe the world around us sometimes. I I think that's something we just don't do enough in our busy lives. So thank you for that reminder, Yuri. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, I hand the host seat over to Deborah Borda, the groundbreaking president and CEO of the New York Philharmonic. She'll speak with Iris Herr, a 16-year-old violist and Jack Kent Cooke young artist. Support for NPR comes from this station. 
and from BritBox with Sister Boniface Mysteries. Brilliant crime-solving nun Sister Boniface returns to solve curious cases in this Father Brown spinoff. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. From Apple Music, including Apple Music Classical, a new app designed for the nuances of classical music. Included with select Apple Music subscriptions and available now in the App Store. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. One of the most rewarding and inspiring moments in a young artist's life is when they get to sit down and really have a conversation with a leader in their field. So I was very excited to be able to introduce our next young performer to Deborah Borda, the president and CEO of the New York Philharmonic. You're going to hear that conversation in a moment, but first, Iris and I have a little bit of Hindemith for you. Iris, welcome to From the Top. Hi, it's so wonderful to be here. It's great to have you. We're going to perform one of my favorite pieces for viola and piano. Tell everyone what we're going to play. We'll be playing the first movement of the Hindemith Viola Sonata, Opus 11, Number 4. Great. Whenever you're ready, let's take it from the top. Thank you. 
Iris Herr from Paramus, New Jersey, 16 years old, performed the first movement of Hindemith Sonata for Viola and Piano, Opus 11, Number 4. I'm Peter Dugan. I was at the piano, just loving every minute of that. And we're here today with a very special guest, the president and CEO of the New York Philharmonic, Deborah Borda. Deborah, thank you so much for being with us. And what did you think of Iris's performance? I was jealous. <laughs> You're really good, Iris. <laughs> you know, I was you. looking at it, you know, from a technical point of view, terrific intonation, all of the technique working well, the vibrato, absolutely effortless. Um, and you look so serious doing it that mm-hmm. I felt in some way you felt a sadness in that mm-hmm. piece, an, an elegiac sense to it. But it was um, it was really good. <laughs> it was. Thank you I, so now the much. reason I say I'm jealous, I'm not really jealous because I do something else in my life now. But in a former life, I was a violist. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and I want to just take a step back now and let the two of you have a conversation. Um, Deborah, why don't you take the reins and interview young Iris here? Okay, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> Hi, Iris. Hi. Yeah, here we are in the green room of yeah. um, David Geffen Hall, which is actually blue. Mm-hmm. So I hope that doesn't throw you off. <laughs> How come you chose the viola? Who can hate the sound? I mean, like, out of all the stringed instruments, I think the viola is the most resembling of the human voice. I kind of resonate with that, too, because, you know, the violin is such, like, this virtuosic instrument. It's, like, flashy. It's like a solo piece, you know. Cello is, like, this mellow kind of... It's, like... I mean, both cellos and violins are very known, but violas, they kind of like, in like chamber groups, it's like the rhythmic support, you know, it's like the backbone of everything. And I feel like my personality really resonates with that. There are so many other roles you seem to have taken as a leader. You founded Liberty in North Korea, which Mm -hmm. helps to bring refugees here, people who've managed to escape from a severely totalitarian regime. You're a tutor for for Do Re Mi. Uh, You work with Back to Bach. Do you see yourself as a leader? Well, in middle school, I, you know, like in group projects, I always found myself liking to take leadership roles, you know, like not giving orders necessarily, but also like putting myself out there and making sure that like I work for what I want to see as the outcome. But also having served all these positions, one thing that I've taken away is that like, yes, it's important to put yourself out there and make sure what you want is known to the people, but also kind of being very selfless in a way and also putting yourself at the bottom kind of because you want to make sure that everyone else, all their opinions and their wishes are put before yours so that you can serve them and that together as a group, what you're working towards is a very cohesive representation. Well, that's a beautiful description of leadership (laughs) and one um, we should all try to emulate because ego can interfere in great leadership, although some is required as well. And we all have to have one, mm-hmm. and it's not popular to have one, but we have to. You couldn't accomplish all that you do without that. Tell me, do you think leadership is an innate talent, or, or can it be taught? It can definitely be taught. I think the environment that you've grown up in is also a major factor. When I was a young girl, I was very soft-spoken. I was really afraid to speak my mind. And, like, when I was ordering restaurants, like, I would never, I would never order myself. Like, I'd always tap on my brother's shoulder, like, can you order for me? Or, like, I'd be really scared to go places on my own. But my years forward, even at pre-college, my studio, seeing all these older people, like, they were kind of my role models. And I think the past six years that I've been at pre-college, just being surrounded in that kind of atmosphere has taught me to be just like them. I think I've gained a lot more confidence. I always tell people 
a person I learned an enormous amount from, much, much younger than me, was Gustavo Dudamel. Mm -hmm. Just working with him gave me a whole different take on what people were thinking about, what people needed, and humility as mm -hmm. a leader. Well, I know this is like a one-in-a-lifetime chance to ask, when there's been a time where you feel like you were pursuing the wrong art or pursuing the wrong career choice, um, how did you overcome that and what made you realize that, no, I'm going to stick with this and this is what I was meant to do? It was a very painful decision for me. I wasn't a, a really good practicer. I wasn't as serious as I should have been until I became about 12. Mm -hmm. And that's, as you know, you got you to gotta start a little bit sooner. It's better to. And so that's simply what I thought I would do. That was all I was focused on, music, 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 playing. Um, so uh, I went, uh, rather than to a liberal arts college, mm -hmm. uh, I went to New England Conservatory. And which is a wonderful school, beautiful atmosphere. They had a wonderful uh, president then who had just taken over, very forward-thinking, Gunther Schuller. And within six months, I knew I had made a terrible mistake because I felt like I was at a technical school, mm -hmm. like I was learning to be, uh, and I don't say this against dentists because we need dentists, <laughs> but I felt like I could have been in dental school. Oh. And I, it was just draining me of joy in music. And when I was sitting there playing, I remember we were playing Brahms' Second Symphony. And in the old, you know, when I was younger, I would have, the hair would have stood up on the back of my neck and I would have felt so almost on the verge of tears. And I just, I felt sort of not the reaction I was used to. I didn't feel dead, but, and I knew something was wrong. Mm -hmm. So I thought a lot about it and I decided that I'd always had other interests. I read, I loved history, I loved drama, I loved many other things. So I thought, you know what I should do? I should go to a liberal arts college. Mm -hmm. And I won't even major in music. I'll major in philosophy or something mm -hmm. else. So I, um, I actually applied to a number of colleges, and I ended up going to a very free-thinking school, Bennington College. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I got there, within six months, I had changed back to a music major because I realized how much it was in my mm -hmm. heart. So I was performing as a musician. I graduated from there. Then I went to the Royal College of Music in London for postgraduate studies. Then I came back and I worked in New York. And uh, one summer I was a fellow at Tanglewood. And I noticed I had friends who played in the Boston Symphony and I would go backstage and hang out with them because we were all about the same age. Uh, they were maybe just a little bit older. And I noticed a bunch of men standing around in the heat. It would be 90 degrees. They'd be standing around in, in bow ties and seats. And I said, who are those guys? They were all guys in those days. And they said, oh, that's, it was like one word, that's the management. That's the management. And I said, well, what do they do? Oh, we don't know what they do. You know. So I was sort of interested. And so I started hanging around and watching what the managers did and talking to the people who were ushers, who were guides. They're called guides mm -hmm. at Tanglewood. And they were going to be potentially managers later on. Um, and then one year, I saw an advertisement to be the assistant scheduling director at the Marlboro Music Festival. Mm -hmm. And so I applied, and I got the job. And it was like the thunderclap moment in the French say coup de foot. <laughs> it was like I knew from that summer that I loved music, and the way music would be in my life was that I would do everything I could to support it in ways that I was probably happier doing Wow. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> you got the story of my life there. <laughs> Thank you so much, both of you, for being here. Iris, um, I loved getting to perform with you and, like Deborah was saying, learn from you. You're just such a 
gem of a young <laughs> musician. Um, thank you. Thank you. Iris Her, 16 years old from Paramus, New Jersey. Deborah Borda is here. Deborah, I'm going to catch up with you again a little bit later in the program. Thanks so much, Iris. You were terrific. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's time to take a break, but don't go away. We have so much more for you on the program. Will a 16-year-old pianist from a famous musical family follow in their footsteps or forge his own path? And why does this 18-year-old violinist play as if it's their last performance ever? Stay tuned to find out why and to hear more from the pioneering president and CEO of the New York Philharmonic, Deborah Borda. You're listening to From the Top, and I'm pianist Peter Dugan. Did you know that From the Top posts short, beautiful videos of our young musicians every day? The series is called Daily Joy. Treat yourself to youthful inspiration daily. Sign up at fromthetop.org. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Volgenau Foundation, supporting programs that protect the environment, educate children, and promote classical music. From Dignity Memorial, helping families plan life celebrations now so their loved ones are protected later, because nobody should have to plan for a loss while they're experiencing one. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at WTGrantFDN.org. This is From the Top, where outstanding young musicians come to play. I'm your host, pianist Peter Dugan, and it is so wonderful to be with you all today, this week and every week, thanks to the generosity of Susan and Gerald Slavitt. We're coming to you from New York City today, so it's fitting that our special guest on the program is someone who has been hugely influential in the New York art scene, Deborah Borda. Deborah, first of all, thank you so much for taking time to speak with me. And also, you spoke earlier with Iris, one of our young musicians. We so appreciate that. Well, we had a lot of fun, I think. Yeah. I was looking forward to it. You have done so much for young people throughout your career. Um, the Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles, probably the greatest example of something that totally changed the way we think about how orchestras fit into the fabric of a community, at least in, in this country. Um, it was already happening in, in Venezuela. But I was wondering if you could speak about what brings you joy when it comes to working with young people and what trends are you seeing in young musicians now? You know, many years ago when people went to Juilliard or Curtis or New England Conservatory, their dream was simply, I want to get into the Boston Symphony, I want to get into the New York Philharmonic, and that was the goal. Right. And I think what you see today is a whole new feeling 
from young musicians that that may not be their end goal. Mm -hmm. In fact, they're much more entrepreneurial. They might want to record. They might want to do chamber music. And they're willing, they think, in a much larger universe, I think, than people did 20 or 30 years ago. That's very inspiring because part of the reason symphony orchestras have stayed in business is that it's evolutionary. Is there a need to find some kind of intersection between the artistic imperative and the moral imperative? and the social imperative. Where do we find that comfortable place and that we don't abandon our art? Right. And that we don't say that the word elite becomes pejorative because it's not. Elite just means very good at what you do. You know, it wouldn't be pejorative if you said, that's an elite skater. But when you say elite about so-called classical music, that's somehow seen negatively. Right. But but I think it's part of this ongoing quest. We should always be figuring it out. yeah. Yeah. We've had young musicians come on the show and talk to me about how can I care about wanting to make the world a better place and justify the hours and hours I spend on scales. I think that speaks to what you're describing of that intersection between the artistic and the moral. Is there an example either in a a program or an artist that you think exemplifies how to bring those two paths together? Well, I think the example you gave earlier Youth Orchestra LA, Yola, yes, uh, and El Sistema. If we go back to El Sistema, though, in Venezuela, the program there is very different from the way it's sort of now almost ubiquitous around the world. Right. And that is a strength. For a large American urban city like Los Angeles, it had to be very different. Yeah. Or, you know, make a great sound in Scotland, that had to be very different. Right. But here's the larger thought about it, which is... Although you're preparing young people in underserved neighborhoods, one goal could be we want to see 10 of these kids over the years grow up and become members of the Los Angeles Philharmonic or the New York Philharmonic. But for me, there was always a greater goal. Mm -hmm. And that goal was that they would become school teachers or lawyers or EMTs, and they would love music. Right. And they would come to concerts because it was in their soul. And Gustavo Dudamel said something that impressed me so much, and it may have been Maestro Abreu who said it, which is music is a fundamental human right. It's like clean mm-hmm. air, clean water, yeah. and we have to give it to people. And if we believe that, we can find ways, whether it's as a violinist or a member of a woodwind quintet or a manager, to, yeah. to search out those pathways. Absolutely. It was a real pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. Thank you. I think what's exciting about spending time with leaders like Deborah is that they remind you, even if you excel at something, even if you're at the top of your field, the learning just never stops. Now, our next performer is going to be playing some Prokofiev, who was, in his own way, a leader and a groundbreaker. This is 16-year-old Jordan Manassi performing Prokofiev Sonata No. 2 in D minor for piano.
16-year-old pianist Jordan Manassi performed Prokofiev's second piano sonata in D minor. That was the finale. What a thrilling performance. That piece (laughs) has it all. It's got lyricism. It's got this sort of brutal, aggressive sounds. It's got this sarcastic wit, and you, you brought it all. Thank you. Thank you. So you study here in New York Mm -hmm. at a famous arts high school. Yes. But your major is not piano. No, it is not. Tell me. So I go to LaGuardia High School, and I major in drama. In drama. Okay. Set the stage for us. Paint the picture. No pun intended. Yeah, right. (laughs) What's it like being a drama student at LaGuardia? It is really a gratifying experience, especially the community there. It really feels like home, um, even though it's in the basement. (laughs) It's really just a special experience to kind of do something outside 
of piano, mm-hmm. especially because, you know, when I come home after school, I practice. So it's just nice to be in school and like have a break from that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> after we met and you had <laughs> rehearsal, you and I read through a scene and, um, I got to witness your acting chops firsthand, which was Uh-oh. pretty cool. You got you're, you're a triple threat. You've got you're a quadruple threat, Uh-oh. right? Because triple threat is like singing and and acting and dancing, but you also have the piano too. <laughs> Our listeners may find your last name familiar. You come from a great musical family. So my dad is a professional clarinetist, and so you know I've grown up just listening to you know piece of wood and you know the sounds that that makes which are totally pleasant all the time i'm kidding Um, (laughs) but no i love hearing him (laughs) practice so he's a professional clarinetist my mom is a cellist and she doesn't really teach that much anymore um, or play that much anymore is there a pressure do you feel like you have your own freedom there i mean how's that going Yeah, I mean, I think growing up in a music, I mean, not even my parents, my grandparents and my aunt and uncle and my other aunt and uncle and, you know, their kids and, you know, it just kind of like this whole like generational thing where like everybody is kind of a musician. And so it's like there's this, I think at times like this kind of unspoken thing that like it's like such a disappointment if you like decide not to do your instrument or Mm. not to pursue your instrument. Mm -hmm. And so I think at times it's definitely hard like being in a household where like that's the case. But it's also really incredible to be part of a household where they understand all of the arts, you know, and they're very proud of me and my siblings for whatever we choose to do. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, my feeling is you have to let your passion guide you and, like, really listen to what your heart's telling you, you know? Yeah. There is something that you do, which I also did when I was your age. When you're walking or, like, riding the subway, you kind of let your imagination go wild. And you sometimes just, like, picture yourself in a movie. You know, I'm walking down the street. I'm like, I am in a movie, and like everybody can hear my music. And like, that's the soundtrack. Yeah, I was like, that is what's happening. Like everybody knows, like how cool I am. Like I am just like, like I'm everything. And then I take my headphones on. I'm like, oh, like I am literally nothing. (laughs) Right. I'm. Oh, I'm just a person. Yeah, I'm just like a person in this city of millions. But it totally. I love the way you articulate that. You obviously have so much possibility and potential in front of you. I'm just excited to see where it takes you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Jordan Manassi, 16 years old, from New York, New York. Next up, 18-year-old violinist Dexter Doris is going to bring down the house performing the Nocturne in G Major by George Inescu. I'll be joining them on the piano.
18-year-old violinist Dexter Doris from Hartsdale, New York, performed The Nocturne in G Major by George Enescu. I'm Peter Dugan. I was at the piano. That piece is stunning, and Dexter, it's obvious that you feel it very deeply, and you play with this old-fashioned, like it almost sounds like Chrysler's in the room when you play. It's this old-time, vintage heart and soul that you play with. It was gorgeous. Well, thank you. I mean, Fritz Chrysler is one of my favorite inspirations, so for you to say that to me really means the world. Thank you. In rehearsal, you were describing to me how deeply you feel this music, and I wondered if you'd share that with our listeners. Absolutely. So... When I was in fifth grade, we learned about Frank Sinatra, who is one of the most famous singers on the planet. And one of his quotes that stuck with me forever is to live every single day as if it is your last. So for me, when I play this piece, I always aim to play this piece as if it is the last thing that I am ever going to perform. Wow. What does that mean to you in terms of the emotions it brings up as you perform? Well, the world is a very scary place now. I mean, it's changed a lot, even from the short time that I have been on this planet. You know, Mm -hmm. global warming is impacting our world, and the coronavirus pandemic is still a huge threat to society. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what's in store for me. You know, so every time I play, I try very hard to just give it my all and to be in the moment because Mm -hmm. to me, that's what music as a whole allows me to do. Yeah. When you told me that idea of playing it like it's the last piece, I think what it meant for me was listening so intensely and feeling so, like not taking anything for granted, not just letting your fingers go. I want to take a moment to congratulate you for being a concertmaster at Juilliard's pre-college orchestra. Thank you. It's a really important position of leadership. It's a great honor. Tell me about that experience and being up there in the first chair. Absolutely. So, you know, being a concertmaster, in my opinion, is one of the most respectable things that I think a violinist can do. You know, I just remember last year practicing and practicing so much for it, you know, because it was something that I've always really wanted to do. And the experience was so rewarding because... I got to discover a completely different side of myself that I had no idea existed until that moment. It was just a really good feeling to be able what's, to What's that. that side of yourself that you that you tapped into? The definitely the leadership aspect. Dexter, I'm so happy that you're part of the From the Top family. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's a dream come true for me, you know. When I was 4 years old and I just started playing the violin before you became the host, actually. I used to watch From the Top when it was a TV show. And after it was done, I turned to both of my parents and I said, I'm going to be on that show. And they're like, Mm -hmm. yeah, right. Okay, sure. (laughs) Mm -hmm, Totally. But now... You called it. I mean, 16 years later, look where we are now. I mean, there's a reason why the universe wanted me to wait for so long. I feel like I've grown into the musician and performer that I want to be in order to give this my all. I'm glad that we were able to help inspire you to pursue violin, and you're going to be doing the exact same thing for someone listening right now. Thank you so much. 18-year-old violinist Dexter Doris from Hartsdale, New York. It's been really great to bring you all a show from New York, which has been my home for the past 15 years. It's a place where there's so much creativity, so much great artistry and leadership, and we've certainly seen that today in our young performers. 
And that's going to do it for our show, folks. Thank you to all of our exceptional performers. I had so much fun playing with some of them and learning from all of them. And a huge thank you to Deborah Borda for taking the time to talk with us. And to all of you listening at home or in the car or while riding the subway, thanks for spending this time with us. I'm your host, pianist Peter Dugan. Please join me next week, and we'll take it from the top. Thank you to sound engineer Steve Sacco at Sear Sound Recording Studio in New York City. A special thanks to the New York Philharmonic, Adam Crane, Rochelle Rowe, and Susan O'Dell. From the Top is produced by Megan Swan and Jessica Tickton. Sound design and music editing by John Escobar with editing and mastering by Rodrigo Cuenca. Our production manager is Amanda Roth. From the Top's executive director is Gretchen Nielsen. From the Top is an independent nonprofit organization based in Boston. If you'd like to appear on our program, apply online at fromthetop.org. From the Top is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Jack Kent Cooke Foundation, providing scholarships to high-achieving students with financial need. jkcf.org. From BritBox, with the confessions of Franny Langton, one woman's story of courage, murder, and forbidden love in this new original drama. Available to stream at BritBox.com NPR. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You know, while From the Top is distributed by NPR, it isn't owned by NPR. It's an independent nonprofit, and so we have to do our own fundraising to make it happen. Please consider making a donation to our ongoing entertainment and education programs at fromthetop.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify, the global commerce platform that helps you sell and show up exactly the way you want to. Customize your online store to your style. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.